Well, good morning, church. I want to welcome all of you who are here in person. Welcome to those of you who are online. We're so glad that you're joining us today. Uh, if you're online, I'm going to ask the, uh, the congregation to do something. And so if you're online today, maybe if you could type into uh, uh, the chat box uh, um, the, the words that I'm getting ready to ask the congregation. So congregation, what I'd like for you to do is I'd like you to turn to one another and say these words. So go ahead and turn and say these words. Jesus says, follow me. All right. I hope you did that on the chat box. I know it probably feels kind of weird, but I want that to be ingrained in our minds today. Today we're looking at invitations. Uh, the theme of today's message is you are established. That comes from uh, the chosen study guide. Uh, I uh, remember when I was a kid, and it's one of those memories that always haunts me, and I, I look at my own children when, uh, uh, because I, you know, God has a way of making things come back to you, you know. I was that kid, and so God gave me four of me. But um, my dad would always say, hey, son, on a Saturday morning, hey, son, you want to go with me? The invitation. And I would always say, what would I say? Where are you going? Where are you going? And my dad would say, it doesn't matter where I'm going. Do you want to go with me? And most times I'd say, well, sure. And then I remember the day that I broke my father's heart when I said, now, I, I think I'll stay home today, Dad. I think I'll stay home today. We're going to be looking today at Isaiah chapter 43, beginning in verse 14. As uh, we go into God's Word, I pray that you'll open your Bibles, uh, your phones, your tablets, or however you read God's Word. Beginning in verse 14, as we have made our way through Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake, I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Well, like I said, uh, this is uh, a, from the episode, you, uh, or the invitation, uh, the theme for the study guide this week is you are established. Now, before we watch the first clip this morning, this is a clip from this week's episode, and it, I hope that you're following along. I, I, I talked to some folks this week that say, I haven't been able to watch any of the episodes yet, but I'm really enjoying the clips. As, uh, as soon as I can, I'll get to the episodes. Uh, the first clip this week is featuring Matthew, the tax collector. Now, just for some of you who have been to Sunday school all your life, you need to understand that this episode portrays Matthew a little differently than perhaps you have created Matthew in your own mind. Uh, the Matthew in the episodes of The Chosen is, well, quite obviously, if you've watched it, sort of on the spectrum. He's on the spectrum, if you know what I mean. Uh, the producers of the series uh, have placed this trait on Matthew, and, and let me just say, we have absolutely no biblical indications of this particularity in Matthew's personality. In a recent interview, the producer-director of The Chosen, Dallas Willard, shared uh, a, a little bit of the background about their decision to portray Matthew this way. 
And he specifically talked about how their decision to betray Matthew this way has really elicited a response from individuals all across the globe. Many who are folks either living on the spectrum or are caregivers of folks on the spectrum. And for them, according to their testimonies, this really has helped their family members, their loved ones, their friends, or those who are on the spectrum to relate to Jesus, uh, this biblical narrative, in a really unique and powerful way. Now, Pastor Joe shared a few weeks ago at our hospitality team meeting that when folks come to church, they look around and they want to see if there's folks like me. Are there folks who experience and live life like I do? So as we go into this, I want you to give you a couple of statistics. I know no one's surprised. Roughly 75 million people worldwide live with autism. 75 million. 37 million people have Asperger's. Now, Matthew's assumed condition here, uh, let's put that aside. Every single one of us can relate to Matthew in one way or another. This is a guy who doesn't have a great relationship with his family. You don't need to be on the spectrum to have struggles and relationships with your family. He finds it difficult to make friends. He has a giftedness for certain tasks, and in Matthew's case, it's in numbers, and if you've watched the episodes, telling the truth. He finds social interactions really difficult to understand. He's more concerned with accuracy of information than he is about whether or not uh, he's being impolite. And Matthew, he's seen the miracle of the fish by the seashore in these episodes so far. He's witnessed Jesus heal a man who could not walk since birth. And for Matthew, and perhaps even for some of us, regardless of where we are in the spectrum, Miracles are not a part of his worldview. He just doesn't see the world that way. They don't make sense to him. And so even though he knows that it will be a difficult and painful task for him, he decides to turn to the one person that we all have turned to at one point or another in our lives. The one person who keeps us grounded. The one person who, well... For today's uh, theme, keeps us established. He goes to see his mom. As the lights go down, let's watch that interaction. Alpheus be home soon. He's away on a work trip. Where will work take him? Does he no longer make leather goods? His shop is robbed. Many of the shops have been. Crime is rampant, makes it very difficult to reopen. He loved his shop. But we still have a roof over our heads, which is more than some people can say. You can ask me for money if you ever need it. How can you say that? It's quite common. I've seen many parents entirely dependent on... Your father would sooner die than take your blood money. I know you are ashamed of me, but your decision is irrational. 
Rome will continue to collect taxes no matter what. I'm skilled with numbers. Did you come here to justify yourself? No, no. Everything is like sand in a flood. The things I thought I knew to be true. Are you in trouble? Do you think that impossible things can happen? That overturn the laws of nature? That cannot be explained? That is what people asked when you were a boy. Even the rabbis were astonished at your talent for reading, math, the way you could think faster than any other child. They thought you would be someone great. Great at what? I'm rich. I have an armed escort. I'm trusted by the Praetor of we Galilee. We never dreamed you would use the talent God gave you to bleed your people dry. But have you ever seen anything miraculous? Matthew. My whole world. Everything I thought I knew. What if it's wrong? I think you should go. Man, it's bad when your mom sends you away, isn't it? That hurts. And what hurts even more is that this Matthew who doesn't experience emotions like the rest of us, who's unfazed by unkind words that the Romans have said to him, is able to accept the rejection from his fellow Jews and never seems to show any emotional pain. Well, when his mom sends him away, we get a little glimpse into his hurt, if only fleeting in his eyes. In many ways, Le uh, Matthew is like the leper that we talked about last week, except he doesn't have the skin condition. He is untouchable. He is rejected. He is unwelcomed in other people's homes. I mean, the Romans use him, but the Romans don't respect him. And now, even his mom has sent him away. He is unwanted. He is unwelcomed. He is hated. He is vilified. He is worse than a Roman. He is a collaborator and an enemy of the people. He is an enemy of God. He is alone, absolutely, utterly alone in the universe. Isaiah's text today that was read is written about a hundred years before the events actually happen. What Isaiah is writing he is writing before the people of God are looking out of the city of Jerusalem and seeing the army of Babylon surrounding their city ready to invade. Now, when we talk about the empires of the ancient world, we typically list those empires, their rise and their fall. I've said them, you've heard them. We oftentimes think of them in a linear list, sort of one right after another, each established on military might and technical advancements. I mean, first there was the Assyrians, then there was the Babylonians, and then there was the Persians, then there was the Greeks, then there was the Romans, then there was the Byzantines, then there was the Turks, and we go right on up into the modern age. For some of us, it's easy to think of ancient history that way. The transition of world dominance 
well, isn't always as clean and neat as we like to talk about them when we list them. For example, when, what day would you identify was the turning point when the British Empire was no longer the dominant empire of the world and the United States of America became a dominant force in global politics? We know that this stuff doesn't happen overnight. We know that there's an ebb and there's a flow to how dominance rises and falls. It's never clean and neat. And the same thing is true with ancient history. The Babylonian Empire that so many people talk about rose and fell actually multiple times in ancient history over the course of thousands of years. Warning, I'm about to give you some history. So if you want to start thinking about where you're going to lunch today, this is the moment to do that. The rest of you, hang with me. The first great empire, and you've probably heard it on PBS or the History Channel, was the Sumerians in about 3500 B.C. This was the first example of the Babylonians, even though we call them the Sumerians. After them, the Akkadians in 3000, the Elamites in 2000, the Amorites in 1850. And I just picked those because of all of the names the Babylonian Empire has had, those are names that probably don't sound utterly strange to you. You've heard some Sunday school teacher or some preacher say those names at one point or another at some point in your life. But there were a half a dozen others that rose and fell that were all a part of what we think of as the Babylonians. There was a centuries-long tug and pull on that region. And even though historians break them down into segments, Isaiah, here in our text today, is talking about what historians call the Neo-Babylonian Empire, or the New Babylonian Empire. This empire really began to emerge after the decay and fall of the Assyrian Empire somewhere around 620 B.C. This new empire, in the time that Isaiah is writing, is generally referred to as the empire of the Chaldeans. But they're still the Babylonians. Now, unlike their predecessors, the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans, I'm sorry, were less interested in slash and burn tactics. Most empires came in, utterly killed everybody, took everything that they could, burnt the land, and left. That's not how the Chaldeans thought. Under their rule, they were known for art and architecture, astronomy and mathematics. They were interested, and because of their interest, interest were able to build one of the first global thriving trade businesses. And their shipping was the envy of the world. It allowed them to transport their military more efficiently, and well, it allowed them to make a lot of money. They were one of the first empires that realized that longevity wasn't just about causing your enemy to die, but was about making money. You see, there's really no such thing as ancient history or modern history. Humans are humans. And whether it's in the ancient times or in the modern times, all of us are interested in two things, political power and money. 
we might say economic development. They became self-centered, however, the Chaldeans did. And money became their only desire. Their culture grew arrogant, and they drifted away from the law and religion to debauchery. And everything within their empire at the time Isaiah is beginning to prophesy is established in greed. In acquiring financial gain. Does that sound familiar to anybody? These were the people that God was turning his people into the hands of. This was the nation that God was going to use to conquer his own people. The Babylonians did indeed conquer the land of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, and they carried off into exile the finest, the best, the most intelligent that the Jews had from the city of Jerusalem. They didn't take everybody. I mean, the, 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 the folks that couldn't give anything to the Babylonian Empire were just left in Jerusalem in the midst of the ruins to make and eke out a living as best they could. They took their brightest, their smartest, their strongest, their most beautiful, their most handsome, and they took them back to Babylon and used them to advance their own culture. Isaiah had foretold it. And now, in the verses that we read today, Isaiah is telling them what God will do next. The ones who made the Jews fugitives will themselves become fugitives. Now, now let, me, let me just set this into some semblance of a tone before I reread it for you. The Chaldean Babylonian Empire were the most feared people in the ancient world. Their strength and their financial power was overwhelming. No one stood a chance at beating the Babylonians on a fair field or a fair fight. So imagine how the people would have heard these words. Isaiah writes, For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. Even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. You just have to understand how ridiculous, how ludicrous that would have been for the ancient Jews to have heard. Ain't nobody beaten the Chaldeans. Well, in the year 539 B.C., there's a guy named Cyrus. He's the king of Persia, which is an up-and-coming nation just further to the east than Babylon. And Cyrus decides to invade Babylon, and he actually defeats them. And one year later, in 538 B.C., the words of Isaiah came true. Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to, well, re-establish 
Jerusalem. About 50 years after they had been forced to leave their holy city. Now, now listen, I understand that in the scope of history, 50 years is just a blip. It's not really that long of a time, unless, of course, you're the one that's living the 50 years. But here are the Jews. Are you ready? Alone. Defeated. Rejected. Reviled. Hated. Derided. They're losers. They're broke. They're weak. And that's the description that the world would give them as a nation. And here... Isaiah reminds them, God is your king, God is your deliverer. Have any of you thought of yourselves with those same words? Have any of you said to yourselves at one time or another, I'm alone, I'm broke, I'm defeated, I'm rejected, I'm reviled, I'm hated, I'm a loser, I'm weak? And yet God is speaking into your life, just like he spoke into the life of the ancient Jews. God is speaking into the life of his church, just like he spoke into the life of those Israelites. God is your deliverer, he says to the Jews. Not your armies, not your cities, not your wealth. You will be established through obedience. You will be established through faith. Who could have conquered the Chaldeans? Established on wealth, established on military might, established on culture. Well, there's no one who could have defeated them. But just like my dad always said, son, you be careful on the playground. There's always somebody can whoop you. He might have added a few more words, but I cleaned it up for church today. There's always somebody smarter. There's always somebody richer. There's already somebody stronger. There's always going to be somebody more handsome or more beautiful or better connected. And yet time and time again in God's Word, we read over and over that God destroys established nations when their establishment is in their own strength. He destroyed the Egyptians. He destroyed the Assyrians. He destroyed the Babylonians. And guess what? He's going to destroy the Persians too. And then he'll destroy the Greeks. And then he'll destroy the Romans. Every nation that has risen and fallen in human history follows essentially the same patterns, even our own beloved nation. And if our strength, if our faith, if our confidence is in those things that are considered by the world to be the essence of our strength and our establishment, God will remove them as well. And the rise and fall of nations, the rise and fall of people, wealth, poverty, victory to defeat, All of those things, all of those things are irrelevant (laughs) in God's kingdom. Matthew will end our story today, but before we go there, before we watch that final clip, I want to share with you another scene that's not included in our lesson today, but is in the episode, and I hope that you've watched it or will watch it. Because we're going to meet another person this episode named Nicodemus. 
Like Matthew, Nicodemus is a man who is searching. If you watch the whole episode, they're pretty faithful to the events that they pull out of Scripture, although they pull them out of different places, you know, uh, the, 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 the call of, or, or the, the, the uh, situation between Jesus and Nicodemus is in John chapter 3. Uh, when you look at the call of Matthew, it's in Mark chapter 2, I believe. Jesus is going to offer Nicodemus an invitation in our episode today. He does it also in John chapter 3. And what's the invitation? Follow me. Well, where are you going? Don't worry about it. Follow me. Now, Nicodemus is an established man. He's a family man. He serves on the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish governing council. He's respected. He's a teacher of the law. And in the episode, Nicodemus asks Jesus the question that all of us might ask. You want me to leave everything? It's not really unlike many of us, is it? What is it you want me to leave behind? Nicodemus, at least in the episode, he seems to want to so badly follow Jesus. Even in John chapter 3, we see this, this yearning, this wrestling for him trying to understand the words of Jesus. Now, we know a little bit about Nicodemus from, from the Bible. Scripture suggests that something happened to Nicodemus after this meeting in John chapter 3. For example, in John chapter 7, we read that Nicodemus actually defends Jesus in the front of the Sanhedrin. And we know that at the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 19, we know that after Jesus has been crucified on the cross, it's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who lay Jesus' body to rest and anoint him. But here in chapter 3 of John, Nicodemus is at war with himself. Have you ever been at war with yourself? What's he willing to give up? What's he willing to leave? We've already seen Simon Peter follow Jesus, and he, like Nicodemus, is married, has a wife, responsibilities, but his life before Jesus wasn't all that easy, so he's kind of used to hard things. So maybe it's not so difficult for Peter to follow Jesus. The Mary Magdalene, well, we know a little bit about her life before Jesus. It was an utter wreck. Leaving her life behind of hardship and of violence, we can understand that. But Nicodemus, a guy who has everything, who's respected, who is wealthy, What's he willing to give up? As a matter of fact, I might suggest to you that the price of following Jesus is significantly more difficult for the wealthy, the powerful, the influential, the strong, the wise, than it is for those of us whose lives are a wreck. It describes, in many ways, suburban Christianity. Go back and listen to the messages from... Uh, our suburb series. Nicodemus has his whole world to lose. He's established. Or is he? But what about Matthew? He's not all that different from Nicodemus either. Let's see what happens to Matthew. 
You see the Parthian foot races last night? Darius ran like a gazelle. Jews don't go to foot races. Your old friend Simon himself used to run the wagering tables. We're not friends. Next. Okay, fine. So you did not go to the races. You stay home? I went to see my mother. Ugh, that would put me out, too. She asked when you're going to give her grandchildren? She didn't ask. I thought your parents don't speak to you. I had questions I couldn't ask anyone else. A mother of a son with talent like yours should be proud. She's ashamed that I could use the talent that God gave me against God. Next. You're good at something. You found a way to make a living doing it. It's that simple. Must be nice to live in a world so simply ordered. We live in the same world, Matthew. Next. Besides, what else are you going to do with a mind like yours? Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going? Guys, let me go. Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. Yes. I don't get it. You didn't get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. Yes. Shall we? We have a celebration to prepare for. You will regret this, Matthew. What's the tablet for? I grabbed it without thinking. You can put it back. No, no, keep it. You may yet find use for it. Where are we going? A dinner party. I'm not welcome at dinner parties. Well, that's not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. Man, I love Jesus. Matthew, son of Alpheus, follow me. Me? Me? You want me to follow you? Yes. Simon Peter asked Jesus, do you know what you're doing? 
Simon Peter does that a lot, by the way. Do you know who he is? Do you know who he is? And Jesus says, yes. Jesus knows you, my brother. Jesus knows you, my sister. Don't you worry about that. He knows you. Matthew has everything. His Roman protector, Gaius, reminds him, have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're going to throw all that away? Yes. You see, Matthew recognizes that he really doesn't have anything. He sees, finally, his poverty, his weakness, his need to be truly established. And Jesus offers the invitation. More clearly than Nicodemus is able to see his. Uh... Pastor, I'm not really sure how we got from the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, fugitives, to Matthew, to me. Well, here it is. You see, brothers and sisters, too many of us are nothing more than our own Babylonian empires. Caught up in the self-deception that our wealth, that our strength, that our talent, or that our good deeds somehow establish our future. Others of us are Israel today constantly rebellious, suffering for our refusal to submit to the truth, and then raising a fist to God who has allowed us to be victimized. Others of us are the Persians. We're different. Victory is ours, we are assured, but we shall rule more justly than our predecessors. The Republicans over the Democrats. The Democrats over the Republicans. Race against race. Religion against religion. God's kingdom is different. Get used to different. We do not need to win wars for God. (laughs) We need to follow Him. There will be a sacrifice. There will be pain. But we aren't the focus of the story. He is. We're not even the focus of our own story. He is. And that makes all the difference. That is what really establishes us. At the beginning of the message today, I asked you to turn to your neighbor and say to them that Jesus asks you, follow me. Jesus is offering the invitation yet again today. Follow me. Now listen, for some of you, this will be the first time that you have understood that invitation. It is the first time that you have really understood what Jesus is saying to you, whether you're online or in person today. And we celebrate that today you are about to say yes to that question. And if you do, 
If you do, we pray that you'll let us know by clicking that box if you're online or by coming and speaking to our elders following the worship service if you're in person. But you know what? Some of us who have been following Jesus, sometimes falling way behind the other disciples, sometimes running to the front, need to hear that every day as well. Every day, when I awake, to say to myself, Jesus is calling me this day to follow me. And every day is a day of following Jesus. Will you pray with me? Merciful God, we come before your throne of grace, hearing again the words, follow me. Lord, sometimes the doubt and the worry of the world that is around us can make us doubt ourselves and even you. You cause nations to rise and to fall. It is you who's given glory when you giveth and when you taketh away. May we follow you. May we depart from this place today, Lord, following you, knowing that life will be different. In Jesus' name, amen.